Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When Foxy Brown comes to town, all the brothers gather round. Because she can really shake them down. The stuff that can happen in a black exploitation film, the stuff that happens in Foxy Brown is, it's insane. I mean, like, <laughs> Foxy Brown ends with, like, Pam Greer's character, like, castrating a man, putting his genitalia in a pickle jar and giving it to his girlfriend. Like, th- you you can't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, Have no fear. Pam Greer is here as Foxy. Hey, Ben Mankiewicz here. I wanted to share more insights from a couple of leading black film scholars, Donald Bogle and Raquel Gates. Donald and Raquel were heard throughout this season. They spoke to us about Pam Greer, her movies, her star image, her talent, as well as the joys and challenges of black exploitation. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Black exploitation is the result of a couple of different things that are happening. One, in the United States, the country is going through an economic recession. And that matters because there isn't a ton of money in the film industry. So you have this sort of scenario where the studios, they don't have money to make like the big budget type of films that they would have done in the past. Like there's just, there's no budget for stuff like that. And so what they do is they start outsourcing a lot of their labor. That's why a lot of the films, like including a lot of Pam Greer stuff, it's like it's shot in the Philippines, right? It's it's, it's shot somewhere that's not here. So they outsource a lot of labor. Um, they take shots on directors and actors that, like, they wouldn't have given a shot to before. Um, the other thing is that you have white flight happening. So a lot of white people are leaving the cities and moving to the suburbs, which means that movie theaters in the cities become largely black spaces. So the film industry starts going after black audiences hard. So every time that, like, Hollywood is broke, they just, they suddenly remember that black people exist. And those are the audiences that they target. You couple that with the wake of the civil rights movement, the rise of the black power movement, the black is beautiful aesthetic, the popularity of soul music, and you combine all of those things and you get black exploitation. I haven't seen Sweetback. I haven't seen the cat. 
I mean, I, I don't want to see him. You had Sweetback, you, and then you had Shaft. You had Shaft's big score. You had Shaft in Africa. You had Superfly. You had Superfly TNT. You had uh, Fred Williamson and Jim Brown making movies. Jim Brown does Slaughter. He does Slaughter's a big ripoff. I mean, there were these films coming, and they were being made to make a quick profit. Those films, in a way, are similar to the race movie. And race movies were black cast movies made from the early years of the 20th century, made for black audiences with African-American cultural signs and references and signposts made outside of the Hollywood studio system. Uh, Oscar Michaud is making movies in the silent period. Noble Johnson is. But the race movies, there was always a problem with distribution with them. But nonetheless, they had reached audiences. And black exploitation is a kind of continuation of that in a, in a new way, a very frank way now, which race movies were not as frank as black exploitation. But black exploitation, it's made its mark and it will still have some kind of influence because black exploitation will influence a new generation of filmmakers. John Singleton with Boys in the Hood, even Spike Lee is going to be influenced by them and aware of black filmmakers from that period. It's interesting because usually when we talk about film movements, if you think about like French New Wave, if you think about like new queer cinema, like usually categories are meant to be celebratory and to really kind of identify like common themes among like a segment of films and filmmakers. But with black exploitation, it is from jump understood to be derogatory. It's a term that's coined in, I believe, 1972 by a journalist named Junius Griffin in a piece that he writes for The Hollywood Reporter. And he's writing specifically about what he thinks are like the negative representations in a film like Superfly. So he's saying, essentially, you know, you have these films that are coming out. They're cheaply made. The the characters are, are like bad guys. There's lots of sex. There's lots of drugs. These are not role models. And he coins the term black exploitation. My name's Coffee. Coffee, black and stacked and packed with fury. <laughs> With both barrels. The first film I saw of hers was Coffee. This is the end of your rotten And at that point in my life, I was very young, and I just wanted to see as much as I could of black movies. And I had already seen older films, and I had already, in a sense, been researching and compiling things in my head, history-wise. And, you know, my knowledge of film went back to the early years of the 20th century. So when I saw Pam, it was to see what was going on, sort of at, at the time. I didn't see Coffee, I, I don't believe, when it first came out, but I'd heard about it. And I saw it in New York City. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a little suburb outside of Philadelphia, and I used to visit New York. And I had an aunt here in New York, and I would come in, and I love New York. And I would see all sorts of movies and things that I couldn't see otherwise. And so I went to see Coffee, and I saw it in the Times Square area, to the best of my recollection. And I can remember that the movie theater itself, it was not like the movie theaters that I went to in Pennsylvania. It was pretty lively, and from my perspective at that time, it was kind of grungy. So I wanted to see this film, and I can remember sitting there watching it, and 
I can't say I was shocked, but there there were things I just had not seen in movies before. Uh, coffee has, you know, there there is a sadistic thread that runs throughout coffee and which Pam has to deal with. You want to spit on me and make me crawl? I'm going to piss on your grave tomorrow. I considered it, quite frankly, coarse and crude. It didn't have the production values that you would get in a traditional Hollywood film. I was sort of fascinated by it, but also kind of repelled, except for Pam Greer. And I can remember with with her that I had confidence in her character almost from the moment that she was on screen, that here was someone who saw things that were wrong and who was going to right those wrongs. And in Coffee, her sister is the victim of drugs that are infesting the Black community and her, her, her little sister, and she's in a sort of vegetative state. And Pam is out to get those who corrupted her sister and corrupted the Black community. And so she had this uh, determination and she had this assertive quality and she was also fearless. And I can remember being, being struck by that. Wouldn't you want to kill somebody who had done a thing like that to your little sister? What would you do, kill all of them? Well, why not? Nothing else seems to do any good. The other thing that I was struck by with coffee, and it happens later with something like Foxy Brown, I was struck by some of the humor in coffee There's that amidst this really violent, ugly world that she has to confront, that Pam did have this humor. And there was a sequence in coffee where she goes sort of undercover as a prostitute, pretending to be a prostitute, and goes by the name of Mystique. And there was a sequence where a prostitute, a real prostitute, sort of dumps this drink on Pam. You don't have a drink. And Pam sort of deals with it and doesn't seem outraged, annoyed, but not outraged. And then she comes back and she dumps this salad onto this other woman, and then a fight ensues. You don't have any salad. But it was her whole attitude with it. It wasn't this upfront anger you were seeing. It was the idea that, you know, I'm going to handle this and I'm going to get you. You're not getting away with it. And so it was just funny. And it was funny uh, in the way that she seemed to enjoy playing this prostitute within the film. So there, there was that aspect of her. She was just unlike any we'll say, leading lady I had seen in the movies before, black or white. She was totally distinct. But that was my introduction to her. More from Donald Bogle and Raquel Gates after the break. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When Foxy Brown comes to town, all the brothers gather round. Cause she can really shake them down. Foxy lady, Foxy lady. Pam Greer. The stuff that can happen in a black exploitation film, the stuff that happens in Foxy Brown is, it's insane. I mean, like, <laughs> Foxy Brown ends with, like, Pam Greer's character, like, castrating a man, putting his genitalia in a pickle jar and giving it to his girlfriend. Like, th- you you can't do that anymore. <laughs> um, and I just remember, you know, it's thing after thing after thing. It, it's her reaching into her afro and pulling out a gun. And then the pic- like, it just keeps going. I, I just remember thinking, like, I, I have never seen anything like this. I don't think I will ever see anything like this again in my life. Um, and, and I have not. Oh, why did you kill me, too? Go on, choke! I don't want to live anymore! That's the idea. The rest of your boyfriend is still around. And I hope you two live a long time. And then maybe you get to feel what I feel. Death is too easy for you, bitch. I want you to suffer. My reception of that film was very contextual. I'm someone who grew up as a kid in the 80s and the 90s where maybe racist language wasn't present in every film, but sexual assault was certainly present in most films films I saw, I would say. I mean, even something that seems as benign as Back to the Future, like, there's, like, rape elements. That's, I mean, that's part of the setup of that film, which is, you know, not, like, understood to be a particularly adult type of film, right? So I don't think it registered for me as being particularly shocking, partly because I think some of the things that we find in the films from the 70s were still, like, quite front and center in films in the the 80s and, and the 90s. In terms of, like, the racist language, I think the first time you see a film like Foxy Brown or any black exploitation film that feels very shocking, but then you see another two or three and you realize this is sort of part of the thing, right? I mean, these are films that are very much about addressing, at least on the surface, racism. And so the white characters are not just racist. They're sometimes, like, cartoonishly racist. And so the racist language is very much a part of that. When I've watched the film subsequently, the things that I'm really struck by are the ways that she brings that strength and that fierceness, but also the sense of vulnerability and fragility. And it's something I didn't appreciate, I think, the first time that I watched, but something that really stands out to me now. And I think that's the thing that makes her really unique. That's the thing that in my opinion, sets apart a Pam Greer film from some other actresses of the 1970s. You think you're back in with those people, but they got to stick a dynamite up your ass and the fuse is burning. You understand me? Now I want you out. Oh, you 
I had never seen anybody quite like that, any, like, Black actress like that in, in my viewing experience. I just thought she was so gorgeous and statuesque and fierce and strong. And, I mean, that was my first takeaway, that she was just this total badass on film. Sister, I think what you're asking for is revenge. You just take care of the justice, and I'll handle the revenge myself. You know, Pam Greer was not a trained actress. She was working as a receptionist in California, Los Angeles, and there was an agent who said to her, you know, I think that there's a part that you should probably try out for. And she went to what amounted to a kind of audition. It was an interview and she saw Roger Corman and he decided right away he wanted her for this film. And for Pam Greer, what it was, the lore of doing the movie was that she would make $500 a week, six weeks work. And she said at that time, she had, you know, a few jobs and she was only bringing home about $150 a week. So it was going to be a, a good paycheck for her and she would go to the Philippines. And so she agreed. But she really had no, no real experience as an actress. And this agent apparently told her that, you know, she should get coaching. I don't know if she ever did. So she's really moving around trying to figure out how to do it. But she took it seriously. She didn't just go and say, oh, I'll show up on the set and I'll say this or that or so forth, even though it's a low budget movie and it from her perspective, she might have thought, who's ever going to see it? I don't think she wanted her her mother to see it. And she didn't want her boyfriend at the time, who was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, to see it. He was then Lou Alcindor. But she did approach it with seriousness. And when, when you hear her in films, this applies to Coffee and to Foxy Brown, the voice, it seems authentic because, it, it, again, it's not a trained voice. And the women, the Black women who had come to the movie's before her, you can look at Cicely Tyson, who had experience in theater and had studied acting. You have someone like Diana Sands, who had experience in theater as well. And you have someone like Rosalind Cash, who was with the Negro Ensemble Company and goes to Hollywood in the 70s and does The Omega Man with Charlton Heston. They come to it with something else. And they have learned through experience on the stage. And some of them, Tyson had worked in, in television, as had Diana Sands. They, that has given them the, the thing on how an actor prepares. They understand exercises that actors have to do. And they have, through practical experience, what Pam was reading about. But it works to her advantage in a sense because the voice, she doesn't necessarily know what to do with it as a trained actress would. She can only go with her gut and with what she feels is the meaning of the scene. And that was something else. I think that that the audience, without consciously thinking about it, um, knew this is something different here. Lot Thickens returns after these messages.
Pam Greer, in all of her films, brings a level of complexity and humanity to her parts. I think that's what makes her amazing and iconic. I think that very often in her 70s films, she is bringing that. That's all her. It's not necessarily in the script. It's not necessarily like what the director might be going for. So that's all of her labor, right? I think that what we get in Jackie Brown is the fact that those elements are more privileged by the film itself. So it's not just on her shoulders to bring those elements to the fore, if that makes sense. So the humanity, the complexity, the fragility, the vulnerability was always there. And it was always there if you looked for it. But it's more highlighted. It's more made the focus and the central aspect of a film like Jackie Brown. You want to see some motherfucking silly? If I have to tell you to shut up one more time, I'm going to shut you up. I just came over here to talk to you. To talk? The way I see it, you and me got one motherfucking thing to talk about. One thing, and that's what you are willing to do for me. Pam Greer as Jackie Brown is, I mean, it's its obviously meta, right? I mean, and, and we see that in, in the name of the film and her character, right? It's, it's referencing Foxy Brown. But it's also meta because it's meeting Pam Greer sort of where she is in the 90s. You know, in some ways, it's also feeling like a commentary on, like, Black women actresses who had this heyday in the 70s who don't necessarily have the iconic place in the film industry in in the 90s. And so I think it's really interesting that she's, in the film, she's a flight attendant, but she's not a flight attendant for, like, a major airline. She's a flight attendant for kind of, like, a B-rate airline. And in the 90s, you know, like, I mean, she's still working, but, you know, Pam Greer, for as iconic as she was in the 70s, I mean, she doesn't have the career that, like, a white male icon from the 70s had. You know, she's not like Clint Eastwood or Robert Redford. Like, that literally just—it's not like a possibility for a black actress. And so in Jackie Brown, it's about that character's, like, her sort of reemergence from the margins, but it's also about— the reestablishment of Pam Greer as a Hollywood icon. I'm not sure you answered my question, Max. Which one? If you had the chance, unemployed now, to walk away with a half million dollars, would you take it? In Jackie Brown, she is a real person. And when you first see her, She's the airline stewardess who, of course, is smuggling money in for an arms dealer played by Samuel L. Jackson, who, who is fantastic in the movie. We see her. She's, in, she's a flight attendant. We see her in her uniform, and she's on this moving sort of walkway like a conveyor belt, and she's just looking forward. And you watch, and you say, well, there she is. And this is moving forward. And where is she going with this? Is it going to take her forward? I think it's a sensitive performance. I think that she, the the way that she and um, Robert Forster, the actor, relate, he plays Max Cherry, Bale's bondsman. And the two of them, Greer and Robert Forster, if you know something about their movie past, Jackie Brown moves you on another level, that these were people who in the past had these glowing careers and then something stopped for them. You know, he had been in medium cool. He also 
if you see reflections in a golden eye, he's the man who's uh, obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando becomes sort of obsessed with him. But, you know, the two of them had had these careers and then things stopped. And and Quentin Tarantino, which he loves to do and which I like him for, he, he likes to bring back these people that he once was affected by. So if you know that about them, the movie becomes another kind of experience for you. But she's got to figure out what she's going to do to save herself. And it, it's very interesting that, you know, she's been bringing this money into the country from Mexico for Sam Jackson and his arms deals. And she stopped and Michael Keaton plays this sort of federal agent and there's a, a cop there and they interrogate her. And what's interesting about Pam Greer as an actress, and it was true in the in, even in the earlier ones, and she learned this from Stanislavski probably, is that the actor has to not only deliver his or her lines, but the actor must listen and respond to what he or she is hearing. I didn't hear you ask permission to smoke in my office. May I smoke? No, you may not. So you get off with a slap on the wrist, but all this criminal activity fucks up your shit for good with the big airlines. Well, you make what? $13,000 a year? I make 16000 plus benefits. You've been in the service industry 19 years and all you make is 16000 plus benefits? Didn't exactly set the world on fire, did you, Jackie? <laughs> and she did it in the early ones. If you really look at her, she's not just waiting for her next line. She's waiting to hear what characters have to say. And here she does when they're interrogating her and you, you get all of these things in her face. And she understands now, and I think she understands it on a deeper level, that in film, it's what you think. That's what the camera really records. And great film actors, male, female, can work without dialogue and tell you so many other kinds of things. What? Jackie Brown. I think that Pam Greer's characters represented a both and for women. And what I mean is when you watch Pam Greer in films, she's both sexy and powerful. She's both vulnerable and kick-ass, right? She's always a, a both-and. She's never an either-or. And, I mean, I'd have to imagine that for women viewers, at least how I feel watching her films, it's a fantasy, but not necessarily like, like a, a male fantasy of like a hot chick, right? There's a fantasy that you can be all of these things. There's a fantasy that you can be vulnerable and cry and mourn the death of your boyfriend and also blow up the people who killed him, right? There's this fantasy that, you know, you see this in Foxy Brown, and when she goes undercover as a prostitute, like, that she does that, but she also retains her dignity. I mean, that feels really significant, that her characters are always able to have this sort of, this core, um, this this sense of self and sense of presence that is not eroded by her circumstances or her situations. That's the thing that I always take, you know, out of something like Foxy Brown, but even like The Big Dollhouse. I mean, as problematic as that movie is, to use a really like overused term, <laughs> as much as it sucks that like 
she dies before the end of the film, which feels like such a cliche. I also really appreciate that we don't get a gory scene of her death. Like, we see her get stabbed, but we don't her. You know what I mean? There's something about the fact that the takeaway from that film is still the great work that she does in the scenes and that her death is not made a spectacle. So there's something about the fact that, like, I feel like in her roles, you know, she does these things. She kind of enters these, like, low spaces. She's degraded. She's, you know, assaulted. She's abused. But she always comes out triumphant. I'm Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, Answer a few questions and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.